And now to Easternwood, driving ball inside 50. Cramery watched on, Stringer can go back and kick another Stringer. He just gets tripped, Earl kicks the goal. He's kicked another. The dogs, they answer quickly. Welcome to the Bulldog Beat, the podcast where we take a look at all things footy, but with a twist. I'm Rana Hussain. And I'm Nasha Buff, and today we compare the role and impact of Indigenous footballers in Australia and the US. But first, we take a look at how the Bulldogs went this week. The Bulldogs play the Brisbane Lions, but the scoreline tells you it wasn't exactly an even contest, Nasha. No, the Lions racked up 67 points, but the Doggies nearly doubled that with a sweet 120 points. And it was the return of the Generals. The Lions welcomed back skipper Tom, Ro- Tom Rockliffe, sorry, and the Doggies saw the return of their vice and acting captain, Easton Wood. Both had been absent since round two, Nasha. And what was your takeaway from the game, Rana? Well, can you say, I mean, look, the Doggies are where they are on the ladder for a reason, and all the injuries aside, their back line, you know, the defence line basically would scare the Mongols. <laughs> I really like that. A, a defence line that would scare the Mongols. Um, well, yeah, as, as you say, I, I thought the third quarter was where the Lions really let the doggies get away from them. You know, at, at one point they had uh, a deficit of about nine goals. Yeah, amazing. I mean, there was no way the Lions were coming back from that after that quarter. Uh, but who did the doggies face next? Well, they faced my team, the Kangaroos, North... <laughs> You look a little bit dejected there. Are you worried, Nasha? I am. You know, running previous episodes of the Bulldog Beat, we actually spoke about how mm. if you're a fan of a team that's facing off against the Bulldogs, you can never be complacent about them. No, not at all. And it'll be an amazing match, one and two on the AFL ladder right now. Uh, it doesn't get better than that, does it? No, it'll be. I think it'll be a cracker of a match. I think so. Looking forward to it. Mm. Anyway, guess what I came across in match reports this week? Sexy. Sexy football? Yep. The doggies were described by one paper as having sexy offensive flair in their match against the Lions. So let's keep a running tally over the season of how many times their play is described as... Sexy. You're listening to the Bulldog Beat with Rana Hussein and me, Nasha Barfen. Rana, do you know much about American football? No, not a lot. I know when the Super Bowl is. Yep. Uh, but you know, we follow the best game in the world. I look. I think you're right. It's true. There's not much time afterwards, you know, to keep an eye on other sports. But in our next segment on the show, we learn some amazing things about American football. That's right. And some of these things have crazy parallels to our great game. So tell us, Nasha, a bit more about this story. Okay, sure. First, Rana, let me ask you, have you heard of the Carlisle Indian School? No. Well, not many people have outside of the US or 
even in it actually. Uh, this school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania was the flagship model of boarding schools for Native Americans. It inspired 26 other public or state boarding schools under the Bureau of Indian Affairs and that was the US government body overseeing this area at the time. And what you just heard is the Carlisle Indian School March, uh, which was composed in 1896. Oh, was it a good school? Did they get a good education there? Uh, define good. <laughs> Look at it this way, it's really hard to say, but let me just describe the school's goals so uh, you get the context. It was set up by a guy called Richard Henry Pratt, who was a general uh, in the US Army in 1879. It was built out of a former prison barracks and the Native American students would arrive at the school and their hair would be forcibly cut short, they'd be forced to change into Western clothes and then names were changed to non-Native American names. Wow, so they were trying to assimilate? Yeah, pretty much. Pratt's motto was to kill the Indian, save the man. <laughs> and this was all based on the popular view at the time that the Native Americans were a dying race and their only hope was to well, was to get the native out of them and make them more like non-Indigenous Americans. Gee, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yep, it does. And, you know, over, say, 40 years of its existence, a large number of Native American children got an education at the Carlisle Indian School. They were from the Lakota, the Cherokee, the Apache, the Cheyenne, and a whole heap of other tribes. But even though it was progressive, well, I suppose whatever stood for progressive at that mm -hmm. time, um, there was a lot of controversy about the school and the ones whose model it followed because basically these schools forced Native American children to be separated from their families, to give up their culture, to give up their language, to lose their identities, in effect. God, that sounds so familiar. And here's the thing. So bringing it back to football, we know that in Australia, some Indigenous people had this traditional game called Mangrook. Mm. This game had large teams, up to 50 people on the pitch. Um, it also had punt kicking. It had marking, players leaping over each other to, to mark, to catch the ball, which was a, um, a possum skin. Oh. And uh, there's a really strong case to be made that it influenced Aussie rules. Now, Carlisle was a national football powerhouse, and it's all Native American teams would regularly take on the likes of Harvard or the Uni of Pennsylvania, and its playbook was... Well, it's hard to explain. The stuff that the Carlisle footballers managed to pull off are now really common in the NFL. Second down and six for Colin Kaepernick and going deep and he's got his receiver bolting. Touchdown! So things like the overhand spiral throw, which you just heard a call of uh, Colin Kaepernick from the San Francisco 49ers. Um, so not just the overhand spiral throw, uh, things like this. What a nice design here with the pump fake. You hand it to him coming around. The eyes of the defense are all over oh. the place. They lose him. And that's called a handoff fake. Uh, that's uh, Cam Newton. He was doing a pump fake, and so mm. that, that's what they were talking about. So those tactics, the overhand spiral throw, the, the handoff fake, they're so widely used in the NFL, and they're all credited to Carlisle Indian School. So this school that was meant to make Native Americans assimilate and wipe the native from their identities actually ended up influencing the biggest sport in America in this huge way. I love doing this podcast. I learn so much every time we do this. Do you know what happened to the school? 
Well, the Carlisle Indian School and its football team folded in 1918, but a lot of the students actually ended up in the NFL in the 1920s, including a guy who many people think is the greatest US athlete of all time, above Muhammad Ali, above Joe DiMaggio in baseball. Um, He was, uh, he competed in the Olympics as a pentathlete and a decathlete, as well as playing football. At a professional level, and his name was Jim Thorpe. He was a graduate yeah. of, of Carlisle Indian School. Oh my gosh. So, anyway, I think there's so many similarities between Indigenous involvement in the AFL and the NFL, and it's all, almost like un, untapped or unknown legacies, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. To discuss these, I spoke to an American sports journalist now living in Melbourne. Ed Wyatt, uh, US sports uh, journalist and commentator. I wanted to start by talking uh, about how you're pretty much drawn on to explain the Super Bowl every year. Um, would you say American football is almost like the prism by which people outside of America understand U.S. culture? I think American sport, certainly. I think basketball has been big over here in Australia for a long time. But yeah, American football may be coming more and more so. Um, Probably, uh, obviously, movies and television, things like that. This year, the election, certainly. (laughs) But, yeah, I think sport, this is a sports-loving country, as is the United States. I think it's pretty easy to sort of look at those uh, for a comparison between the two cultures, definitely. Yeah, we always see in movies, it's always uh, the popular students. There's always, they're always footballers and, and cheerleaders. Um, although Taylor Swift did do a video clip where she fell in love, she was a cheerleader, and then she fe- fell in love with the wide receiver, so that was a bit... <laughs> yeah, that's it. typically the quarterback, so that just gives it a little bit of a twist. But yeah, I think, look, I think even people that don't really like sports uh, would be able to see the those analogies and representations, you know, the cheerleaders and are the popular girls, the quarterback, the football team, the popular guys, those sorts of things. So even if you don't like sports, I think that's an, an easy connection to make. Uh, as you say, uh, Australia is a sports-loving nation, as is the U.S., there's a lot of people in Australia who aren't uh, sure or are unaware of some of the contributions made by Indigenous people in Australia. Um, I mean, we, we know of high-profile AFL athletes. Mm. You think something similar has happened in, in the US? There's not that much awareness, I guess, of the involvement of um, um, Native Americans um, as uh, the Indigenous people of the, of the continent. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, when you look at uh, American sports and, and how many African Americans are involved, you know, it's an easy. It's it's a, sometimes people are tempted to make a link between African Americans and Indigenous Australians, but African Americans about 13 percent of the population, whereas Native Americans are more similar to uh, Australian Indigenous, somewhere around one percent or less. Um, so there hasn't been as big, uh, obviously, a contribution in terms of Native Americans. However, if you go back into the 1900s, 1920s, and look at Jim Thorpe, who is often called the greatest athlete in the history uh, of America, a guy that won a, a couple of uh, gold medals in the Olympics, uh, played professional baseball and football, and was one of the uh, you know, early superstars of the National Football League. I mean, just an extraordinary individual when you go back. He was a Native American, a tribe called the Sac Fox, S-A-C-F-O-X. And, uh, you know, he was an absolute uh, legend in American sport. Now, that tradition hasn't really continued as much. There are certainly uh, players 
today who are Native Americans, a cup two or three in baseball. Sam Bradford, who's the quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles at the moment, is one sixteenth Cherokee, so he's got some Native American heritage. But yeah, the story of Jim Thorpe is a fascinating one, and and certainly without someone like that, you could argue the National Football League uh, would not be where it is today. Uh, you mentioned Jim Thorpe. He went to Carlisle Indian School, who is actually credited with a lot of the stuff that we see in American football uh, today. What about um, other sports? You mentioned um, uh, American football. You mentioned um, baseball. I did mention yep. baseball. There are two, uh, three active players currently, including Jacoby Ellsbury, who was, uh, grew up on the Warm Springs Indian uh, Reservation in Oregon, a place I've been through a number of times. And He then went on to play at Oregon State and uh, with the Red Sox. Uh, basketball really seems to be the Native American sport. When you, when you look at basketball, and I've known uh, a couple good friends of mine grew up in Montana, often played against uh, Native American uh, schools, and they have to go onto the reservation to play them. And they used to describe it as being like this just amazing experience, packed to the rafters. And the Native Americans like to play this thing. It's often called res ball. So res, re, um, res being the reservation. They call it the res. If you're, if you're uh, hooked up with any Native Americans, you'll hear them talk about the res. And that means the reservation. Res ball is a little bit like street ball. It's flashy. It's, uh, they like to score. They like to get up and down the court. And I, I look at a, a girl named Shoni Schimmel, who also is from Oregon, from the Umatilla tribe. And she grew up in eastern Oregon, a place called Hermiston. And she was so good that her mom, who was actually a coach, actually took her to Portland, to the big city, to be in a better school. She ended up going to the Louis, uh, University of Louisville. She now plays for the Atlanta Dream in the WNBA. And she is the epitome of the Native American uh, basketball player. She's incredibly flashy, great passing skills, really great drives to the basket, uh, incredible role model for young uh, uh, Native American girls. So it, look, it, it is an absolute uh, sports, very important to that culture. It's just that you probably don't see it as much in America. Um, you have to be in a very fortunate position. My dad actually, ironically, is very fortunate. He's an American football coach in uh, Washington State, way out on the, in the Pacific Ocean, pretty much go to Aberdeen and then just keep driving and you hit the ocean. But he's got a lot of Native American kids who actually come down from the reservation to play in that local high school. And it's a really great exposure, obviously, for them, but I think also for the other kids who get to sort of see uh, this culture that is often highly underrepresented in, uh, in American, uh, not only American sport, but American culture. Well, I mean, do you think the AFL's indigenous athletes get a higher level of exposure and a higher level of support? I think they actually uh, do get a reasonable amount of exposure in, in a very good way. Obviously, we saw some negative things with Adam Goods last year, reprehensible uh, situation, just ridiculous. So I'm just going to interject there for the benefit of our international listeners. Uh, Adam Goods, who Ed is referring to there, was a former AFL player for the Sydney Swans. He was one of the best accolades on and off the pitch, like the Brownlow, which is Australian football's equivalent to the MVP and Australian of the Year in 2014. Uh, in May 2013, Goodsy, that's his nickname, pointed out a racial slur directed at him from a 13-year-old fan of an opposing team. Uh, he called on the community to support the girl instead of blaming her. Over the next couple of years, he was subject to constant uh, booing from opposition crowds at games, and the whole thing led to a national conversation in Australia about race. Although much of the media supported him, in some prominent blogs and social media, he was subject to vitriolic abuse, like... Adam Goods is leading his Aboriginal people into a dead end. Why does he only ever acknowledge his black skin and never his white? 
Why doesn't he ever talk about his white family? Goodsy let it effing go. The Aboriginals were just lucky that it was the British who arrived. They were introduced to the benefits of the civilised world. We non-Aboriginal Australians are not going anywhere. Goods should get used to the fact. I have no respect for people who lie, and this F-wit is a disgrace to his people, the Australian people, and his sport. His elevation as Australian of the Year was a mystery to me. Adam was divisive then, and he's being divisive now. And on it went. He took one week of leave in August 2015 from the stress and attention and an outpouring of support followed. Many clubs wore Indigenous-themed uniforms that week, while the captains signed a joint statement supporting him. He returned and played for the rest of the season, but it would be his last, and he retired from the sport in September 2015. Uh, I do think, like the States, there is still a struggle with sort of accepting a person as an athlete, which is easy to do, and accepting pers- a person as an equal individual, which is not as easy to do. And I think that's where you get some real issues that come out. That Goods thing is very painful. I'm actually a Sydney Swan supporter and a massive fan of Adam Goods, and I really struggled through that whole thing last year. Um, but yeah, I think that's still something that has to be dealt with. But that said, I do like some of the initiatives the AFL does. I think the way it sort of uh, represents those players and their culture and their heritage, I think, is very good. And I think in many ways is, is uh, you know, headed completely in the right direction. So, yeah, I do think so. Always a tough thing to talk about. Always very difficult to talk about. People are tempted to go, what are you saying? You're not even from here and you're trying to talk about it. But I do think, uh, you know, there are some similarities, certainly, between the Native Americans and even the First Nations in Canada. We should mention that. Um, there are a lot of uh, those players in the NHL, the National Hockey League. So uh, the, you know, not a lot, but there, are, there have been over the years a number of very good uh, Indigenous Canadian players as well. So who are some of the, the top uh, Native American hockey players for, for Canada who are of First Nations background? Yeah, well, Carey Price is a goaltender uh, for the Montreal Canadiens. I think his mom was actually a, a chief in uh, British Columbia, so out in Western Canada. Uh, there is uh, Jordan Tutu, and he's actually an Inuit from Nunavut, which is pretty much as far as you can go as Canada before you hit, hit the Arctic. Um, TJ Oshie is an interesting case. He's actually an American guy who plays uh, in the National Hockey League, but he's Oglala. Sioux background, and uh, the one that I liked the most was Jonathan Chichu, which is a great name. He's now playing in Russia, but he played for the Sharks for a while. He's from a place called Moose Factory, Ontario, which is one of the greatest names, I think. Canada's got a lot of good names, Moose Jaw being one of them, but you get Moose Factory is pretty good. Is it as remote as it sounds? It is very, very remote. I think it's as far north in Ontario as you can get while still being in the province. Ed, is there anything else that uh, you want to bring up that I haven't covered? Uh, the one thing I would uh, mention is that there's a great book by a guy named Larry Colton, who's a very good writer, and he spent a year on a Native American reservation in Montana, Crow Reservation, following a girl, a superstar of high school basketball called Sharon LaForge. And this girl basically had every opportunity to go anywhere and play anywhere. She was that good, but there were lots of things about her culture and her background that made it very difficult for her to get there. Just the idea that she couldn't get off the reservation, some alcoholism issues, some broken family issues, those sorts of things. And it's just a, a heartbreaking story in a way about somebody that could 
uh, you know, could have gotten out but didn't. Yet, on the other hand, you have to flip it and say maybe that's not what she wanted to do. Maybe that's, you know, wasn't going to be good for her anyway. But that's, a, I'd highly recommend that. It's called Counting Coup, C-O-U-P, and Larry Colton, C-O-L-T-O-N, is the author. Very, very good book. Ed Wyatt, sports journalist, speaking there to Nasha Barfin. <laughs> On the Bulldog Beach, it's now time for... One, two, three, four! What's happening at Witten Oval? I'll kick us off with the VFL. And although the Footscray Bulldogs fell to Sandringham this last round, the next one is their next home game. Come down to support them at Witten Oval against Werribee. All the ticketing details are in the VFL section of westernbulldogs.com.au. Thanks, Rana. And the Western Bulldogs have announced they'll be the junior partners of one of the fastest growing leagues in Australia, the Western Region Football League. If you live in Melbourne's West near Witten Oval, like I do, and you want to play footy, this league has a team for you. They've even launched a new under eight competition as a pathway between Auskick and club football. And you can get all the details at the Western Region Football League website at wrfl.org.au. Play on another of the dogs. And now to Easternwood, driving ball inside 50. Cramery watched on, Stringer can go back and kick another Stringer. He just gets tripped, Hill kicks the goal. He's kicked another. The dogs, they answer quickly. At the end of your message, press 1. This is Mandy Crane, originally from Moline, Illinois, in the USA and a proud Bulldogs member and supporter since moving to Australia in 2004. Reading the credits for this episode, The Bulldog Beats is a joint project of the Western Bulldogs and the Islamic Council of Victoria. The presenters are Rana Hussein and Hanadi Reba. The producer is Nasha Baffin. Thanks to our guests today. Special healing vibes to Matt, JJ, and Bob. Go doggies!